It's Tuesday, February the 16th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be your moderator today. One of the joys of moderating is I get to introduce the stars of the show, the Goodfellows. They're all actually Hoover senior fellows, but we call them Goodfellows for the fun of it. That begins with John Cochran. John's an economist, and he is the Rosemary and Jack Anderson senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Hello, John. Great to be back. Hi, everybody. Our second good fellow joining us is per usual from his wilderness outpost and mourning Scotland's loss to Wales and rugby, the one and only Neil Ferguson. Neil is, of course, a eminent uh, scholar. He is a historian and author. He is also the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Hello, Neil. Thanks, Bill. In Scotland, a defeat, particularly one of uh, such a slim margin, is a moral victory, always. <laughs> and our third good fellow, uh, the, the optimist in the crowd, uh, three being the operative number because he wore three stars on his uniform, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Aljami Senior Fellow, and he is also the author of the best-selling book, Battlegrounds, A Fight to Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R. Hi, Bill, John, Neil. Great to be with all of you. So, gentlemen, we're going to leave America's shores this week, and we're going to travel to the distant region of the Middle East. Uh, raises a lot of questions I'd like for the three of you to get into today. I'm curious as to the future of the Abraham Accords, uh, the expected Biden pivot on Iran, the expected Biden pivot on Israel. The President of the United States has yet to speak to the Prime Minister of Israel, apparently. Uh, the future of the Gulf states. What's next in this evolution of diplomacy and changing economies and human rights? And if uh, the time is willing and the spirit is willing, perhaps we should also talk HR in particular about the future of war. Will there be a third U.S. involvement and engagement there? Uh, there have been two in the past 30 years. So a lot to cover in a short period of time. So let's get to it. And HR, I'd like you to begin the conversation by parsing some words for me. This is from the White House briefing last February the 12th. A question of a reporter asked Jen Psaki. She is Joe Biden's press secretary. The question, quote, can you please just give us a broad sense of what the White House is trying to achieve in the Middle East? To which Ms. Psaki answered HR, quote, well, you know, again, I think we, there are ongoing processes and internal interagency processes, one that we, I think, confirmed an interagency meeting just last week to discuss a range of issues in the Middle East. We're, we've only been here three and a half weeks, and I think I'm going to let those policy processes see themselves through before we give kind of a complete laydown of what our national security approaches will be to a range of issues. HR, you've stood at that same podium in the James Brady press briefing room in the West Wing of the White House. Would you care to translate what she just said? <laughs> well, it means they don't want to talk about it, right? And, and it means I think that there is a, a debate going on within the administration about what our approach is going to be to the Middle East. I mean, I, you know, there, there's a tendency, I think, across now multiple administrations to look at the Middle East mainly as a mess to be avoided. And I think if you look at the foreign policy record of the Obama administration, and many of those who have joined the Biden administration came from the Obama administration, that is where their foreign policy record, I think, was most abysmal. Maybe a second to China, but maybe tied. And I think mainly because they did see our disengagement from the Middle East as an unmitigated good based on the assumption that, hey, you know, it just can't get worse. Well, actually, it just whatever you think it can, you know, can't get worse in the Middle East, it actually can get worse in the Middle East. And and our and our you know, much celebrated disengagement emboldened adversaries in the region, empowered Iran across the Middle East, I think helped to accelerate the, the horrible cycle of violence and the serial episodes of mass homicide that is the Syrian civil war. 
that you know that generated a tremendous refugee crisis that affected not only the re- the region, but but Europe uh, as well. And then, of course, a big element of it was this this Iran nuclear deal, you know, which which further empowered Iran with the relief of sanctions. Uh, and 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 the flaws in the deal really didn't accomplish the objective of blocking a path to a nuclear weapon. So I know we're going to talk about a lot of this. Uh, I, I think that there's a great deal of trepidation in the region again, a belief that the U.S. is going to disengage again. Uh, and so what you're seeing across the region, what we'll probably talk about, I think, you know, for much of this episode, is a whole range of of hedging behavior uh, among, among friends and partners. The suspension of the arms sales to 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 uh to Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates uh the withdrawal of support for you know, for Saudi efforts in in Yemen for example these are all reinforcing i think fears of those in in the region that the United States will again adopt a policy that will uh th- that will make them more reliant on others on themselves to a certain extent uh but but also that will empower Iran across the region HR is the issue disengagement or changing sides? Uh, more support for Iran, less support for Israel and the uh, <clears throat> UAE and the, the signatories of the Abraham Accords. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's it's funny now that you know now that I, I did have that one assignment in Washington in my career, I am I am a little bit more adept at identifying a story that was leaked by somebody. And one of the stories that was leaked in the last week was this idea that well we need a better balance you know between our approach to Saudi Arabia and an Iran and Iran so it put the two out there as equivalents that need to be balanced and of course the balance is shifting against Saudi Arabia and for Iran the appointment as well as Rob Malley to have a role in this you know who was instrumental uh, in, in in alleviating pressure on Iran under this assumption right that hey Iran is going to become a responsible stakeholder in the in the region which is I, I think a complete pipe dream and yeah, Neil, I'm wondering how what, what your read is of these initial shifts, but but John, I would say that, you know, I, I think that it, you're right. This is this is this is this balance sort of sort of uh, approach uh, under really fundamentally flawed assumptions about the nature of the Iranian regime in particular. I think HR, what we're seeing is the Obama restoration uh, with respect to the Middle East, and it's it's very striking. In contrast to what's happening with respect to China, where the new administration is essentially continuing the policy that you uh, instituted uh, of treating China as a strategic rival, on the Middle East, they're they're reverting to the Obama playbook. And that's not too surprising because some of the people in the administration are the very same people who were uh, handling policy back then. Uh, And it's striking how wrong they've been. For me, the the fascinating thing is how reluctant anybody is in the uh, Biden team to acknowledge that the Trump administration had successes in the Middle East. John Kerry, who was, of course, Obama Secretary of State and is now coming in as climate czar, actually said there would could never be normalization agreements between Israel and the Gulf monarchies. Uh, but that, of course, happened. And I'm struck by how few... Uh, if any of those people are ready to acknowledge not only what you said, that the Obama administration did very poorly in the region, but it's even harder, I think, for them to admit that the Trump administration had some significant successes. I've just read a fantastic essay by Shani Moore, an Israeli writer, who goes through what he calls the mistakes made by the peace processes. And I love this term, uh, the peace processes, the professional believers that a peace can be achieved 
by concessions to the Palestinians, a belief that you can trace all the way back to 1990 and even further. And as he says, the trouble about the Biden administration is its return of the peace processes, and they haven't updated their thinking at all, despite the fact that a new approach under President Trump yielded significant benefits in ways that they would never have foreseen. Is that a, th a fair analysis, do you think? Yeah, I'll tell you, I think it is a fair analysis. And I think it stems in large measure from our reluctance to think deeply about problems and challenges that we're facing, and especially to examine the assumptions upon which previous policies were rested. Uh, and I mentioned one of them, right, that, that Iran would, would, having been welcomed into the international community, would be like the Grinch at Christmas time, right? Their, their hearts would grow two sizes bigger. They would stop the four-decade-long proxy war. They would give up the nuclear weapons program. And, of course, that's, that's not going to happen. I think the other related uh, assumptions are, as you mentioned, you know, that the, that, the, that the peace process really rests on concessions to the Palestinian and the Palestinian Authority, which really, of course, is excessively weak. Uh, and and, and you know, that ignores the record, right? The, the record of Gaza, for example, where Israel did turn over Gaza only to see Hamas voted in and, and to have a, a major security threat uh, on the southern border. So I, I think what I would recommend is, is that we pay attention to sort of a John Cochran-like assessment of incentives, right? What, is, what are the proper incentives in the region? What are countries in the region driven by what is what is the source of their behavior, and and begin and begin with that? I think what's what's odd about the and, and you know I think worth pointing out about the Abraham Accords is is the Abraham Accords themselves are in part a hedging strategy in recognition that if the United States disengages from the region, the best guarantor of, of some of the Gulf states' security uh, could be Israel, and and vice versa, right? They're, they're dependent on each other for security. Uh, in connection with the threat with which they're concerned, which is which is Iran, and and John, I wonder what your thoughts are about the Abraham Accord and 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 you know how you see the region from a, an economic perspective. Yeah, I'm I'm jump I'm dying to jump in on the economist view on this, but first I want to want to be every man here and uh, and help our listeners. Uh, I think um, you might start by just laying out what, when you said sort of the Obama strategy, I get the sense what you mean is um, pressuring Israel to make concessions to the Palestinian Authority. And I like to distinguish Palestinian Authority rather than uh, Palestinians, uh, trying to appease Iran and get them to play good and um, fairly cold relations with the um, Gulf states and the Saudis um, and occasional lines in the sand leading to disasters in Syria. Uh, and, and you might say, okay, what's in the Abraham Accords, uh, especially, yeah, we, we kind of know what countries signed them and say they're going to get along, uh, but I think you should give our audience a, um, you know, what's, what's below the headline. And th then I'll be delighted to jump in on some economics and incentives. Well, you know, first of all, it's, 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 it's an advance in terms of security, right? This is what we're talking about is the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, uh, Sudan, uh, and, and, uh, and, and Morocco. And and what, what these you know, what these accords do is is really important from a security perspective for Israel because really for no other country on earth do conversations begin with we recognize your right to exist right and and these countries before uh, at least at least you know from a from a a, uh, you know, a de jure perspective did not recognize Israel's uh, right to to exist 
So it's important for, to, for Israel from a security perspective, but it also unlocks uh, really tremendous potential, as I mentioned, for intelligence and defense cooperation, by the way, much of which was already ongoing based on the Iranian threat. And then, uh, and then it also unlocks tremendous economic potential. It's interesting that some of the the the, the, the most uh, you know the obvious and and uh, energetic you know uh, activity that occurred in the wake of the signing of these accords were uh, were, were were business executives uh, flying back and forth between these countries signing letters of agreement uh, and and uh, and and I think there's there's there is going to be a boost uh, to the economies of these countries in a way that it hopefully diversifies our economies integrates them uh, more effectively across the region as well as as well as with Israel. Yeah, I mean, so from the Abraham Accord point of view, we know that these oil dependent countries have been trying to diversify for a long time. Israel, I think somebody said that either the greatest or the worst thing God ever did was to lead the Israelis to the, to lead the Jews to the one place in the Middle East that didn't have any oil. Um, which meant, though, that they had to—they have developed a modern tech economy. They—they they know how to do all sorts of stuff, which is useful to these countries. Um, there's two economic incentives that I know. The first, when I look at the whole Palestinian question, um, why do they? Why does the Palestinian Authority remain so intransigent? Because they're paid to do so. I mean, that, that's their way to stay in power. They're basically—I mean, they haven't had elections in a long time, uh, and the authority itself. Um, uh, does does very well by the current system and and would be in in any sort of peaceful democratic system they would be gone um, and the U.S. and the U.N. and many other people have been responsible for paying to keep them intransigent for years and years. The thing I noticed um, uh, sort of in between the lines of the Abraham Accords and and this will be a question because you know it better than I do but I followed with interest some of the um, Jared Kushner proposals and which are part of the accords to um, say, look, we've been at this two-state business and, and peace first and everything else second for 40 years. It's not going anywhere. Why don't we let the Palestinians um, get rich first? <laughs> uh, why don't we allow, in my words, allow development? On, it was the proposals were a little bit too top-down state-centric, uh, but certainly as a strategic proposal, let's forget about negotiating every square inch of Jerusalem, what's yours, what's mine. Uh, let us get business and wealth going. Either uh, connections between the uh, Palestinian Arabs and the and the rest of the Arab world, or connections uh, to them with Israel. Uh, but uh, if economic development came first, um, people would find an interest in in being more peaceful, and would also find that um, their interests don't lie with the uh, Palestinian Authority. That was very much in, in between the lines. But that part of the Abraham Accords, the, the idea that the solution to this whole problem in the, in the Palestinian areas is not a grand negotiated settlement with the Palestinian Authority, but rather um, economic development, which, which Israel needs, needs a little bit of push to let them develop economically and the Arab states need a little bit of push, but that strategic vision struck me as a very interesting one. Now, the, to form this as a question, uh, is this still alive? Where is this in the Abraham Accords? Um, what do you have to say about it? <laughs> well, I think I think some people you know, uh, may have uh, forgotten that there was a Trump administration you know, peace proposal between Israel and the, and the Palestinians. The Palestinians did not participate in the development of that proposal, and it was it was much pilloried by those who were part of kind of the professional 
Israeli-Palestinian negotiating class that that hasn't been able to get very far, you know, in in, in recent years uh, beyond uh, beyond Oslo and the the two states, the idea, you know, the of a, of a two state solution. But the value of it is it's something that can be put on the shelf and can show, okay, this is a a proposal uh, with which Israel could live, right, from a security perspective as a basis for negotiation with a Palestinian authority that emerges that is now very weak and, and fragmented is also is also part of the you know part of the part of the problem so you know neil i'd love to hear what you what you think about this about you know the what what the possibilities are for the future i think they're you know very slim if not zero you know for any kind of enduring peace settlement between israel and and the palestinians so it does make sense right to do the best you can to, to try to at least end the, the Palestinian uh, people's status as refugees, try to help their economy uh, gain a degree of vibrancy, to, to move closer to, to, uh, to, to alleviate the unemployment problem and so forth, as you work you know, so-called outside-in with Gulf states to incentivize those states uh, and others playing a more positive role in getting to an enduring settlement. And, and Neil, I'm giving you a lot to comment on, but the dilemma that that, that that Israel's facing is well known. It's it's that is it how do you solve the dilemma between Israel wanting to remain a Jewish democratic state? How do you reconcile that with what appear to be diminishing opportunities for a two-state solution? If if you abandon the two-state solution, uh, you also place Israel as a Jewish Israel's future as a, as a as a Jewish democratic state in jeopardy. And I think that's what Israeli leaders are going to have to cope with after this national election, which is going to just happen in a few weeks. So quick, I, I just uh, want to push in that is, do, do you do hey John. politics first <laughs> and then economics, or is the route to the political solution, uh, let them get rich because people who are busy getting rich and starting stores don't have much interest in fighting about yeah. things. Okay. So that was the, I, that was the idea. It was certainly very much in Jared, Kushner's mind, but I think there's a different way of of looking at it. I mean, it's difficult to make money in the kind of context that the Palestinian Authority creates, uh, and so you have a chicken and egg problem there. But I think what was right about the Trump administration's approach was simply to make it clear that this wasn't the top priority. What the peace processes have insisted for decades is that you can't have peace in the Middle East unless you solve this problem, but in truth, the problem's insoluble. So better to stop prioritizing it. And I think part of what we need to, to recognize uh, as fellows of an American institution uh, in the United States is that the United States is not really master of the future of the Middle East. It is not master of the destinies of any of the key nations. And the real significance of the Abraham Accords is, as HR rightly said, it's a hedge against the post-American Middle East. I think the post-American Middle East is, is coming. It's been on the way for some time. In fact, I think it was declared by Barack Obama uh, when he was president, uh, when he didn't enforce uh, the pink dotted line, which we thought was a red line uh, with respect to Syria. And he went on television to say, we're not the global policeman, which essentially meant we're not going to call the shots in the Middle East anymore. And Vladimir Putin said, well, in that case, I shall. But I think it's no longer really up to the United States what happens. And this is, this is really where it gets complicated, because it's a multiplayer game 
in which neither the United States nor, for that matter, Russia really has the power to dictate. And the key shift was Israel's prioritization of the Iran threat, that was Benjamin Netanyahu's contribution strategically, and the recognition of the Arabs, particularly the Gulf Arabs, that they really needed to align themselves with Israel in a post-American Middle East where, where clearly Iran was uh, a major regional threat. That seems to me that the geopolitical shift, and all that happened was that the Trump administration kind of went along with that. Uh, the peace processors sat on the sidelines and sniped, and they made a succession of wrong predictions. Example, Peter Beinart, if you move the embassy to Jerusalem, there will be an intifada. Completely wrong. Uh, another prediction, if you have a strict fence between Israel and the West Bank, you will not stop the suicide bombers. Actually, it stopped the suicide bombers. Uh, if you hang on to the Golan Heights, there'll never be peace. Uh, Martin Indyk made that argument, former U.S. ambassador to Israel. Actually, it proved to be extremely important for Israel to have retained uh, the Golan, given what was happening uh, right now next door in, 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 the, uh, in, in the Syrian civil war. Uh, the belief that somehow Turkey could be a, 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 a helpful actor, which was a, an, Obama, uh, uh, an Obama objective, an Obama idea. The Trump administration in some ways carried on with it. Erdogan was never going to be a useful, honest broker, uh, or indeed a, a reliable ally to the United States in the region. And I could go, I could go on. So the peace processes have had an analytical framework that has been wrong again and again and again. Oh, if you take out key uh, players in the Iranian regime, there will be a terrible backlash and the region will erupt. I'm still waiting uh, for the eruption post Soleimani's uh, uh, assassination. Conclusion, the framework of the foreign policy establishment on the Middle East has been wrong so often that any rational person would discard it. And what is happening right now is that the key players are making their own decisions with minimal influence from the Biden administration, which, as HR said, doesn't even know what its policy is, except that it's probably the old policy of the Obama administration. I think that's where we are. Let me let me state that even more forcefully. Um, and in some sense, we made a mistake here by starting with the Palestinian Israeli-Palestinian question, because I think <clears throat> what all the parties have recognized as the truth is that that that's not the key. There's this this old fable that that's the key, and then once you solve that, everything else is kumbaya, which was of course a complete fantasy, but kept on only so long as the United States was active. In some sense, the U.S. disengaging from the Middle East. I'm going to challenge you, HR, on this. <laughs> maybe might have been the greatest thing that ever happened because the Israelis and the and the Arab Gulf states and even the Saudis are now, oh my God, we're on our own here, and there's this Iran thing. And uh, we, we better do something about it. Uh, as a, and, and we can no longer keep up this fiction that yes, Washington pressured the Israelis, Palestinians, and you guys want to live in that dream world if you want. Whereas the fact of the Middle East is that, that is, that's a boiling sore, which has been there for 40 years and will continue likely, uh, likely for another long time. But um, compared to Iran, Syria, Lebanon falling apart, uh, Yemen in civil war, um, un possible unrest in Saudi Arabia. You know, everything else in the Middle East is so much worse and so much active and so much more salient. 
that they what they did was the U.S. disengaged, and then they just said, "Well, that's something we don't have to pretend anymore that that's the crucial problem." Uh, now we got a whole bunch of other problems, and we better take care of them on our own because the U.S. is is not only as Neil said, when they do pay attention completely in a dream world, but now the U.S. isn't paying attention anymore. So if, if someone's going to stop the Iranians, it's going to be us. HR, I've got a question. One of the things to which I cannot find an answer is, why does the Iranian regime even hang together? The Iranian economy is a disaster. It was a disaster before COVID-19. They then had an exceptionally bad uh, experience in the pandemic, so far as we can work out, though who knows whether to believe the statistics from Iran. Uh, this is a regime which ought to be one of the weakest uh, in the region, and yet we act like it uh, is a formidable power. Uh, right. So how do you think about this? I know it's something you've written about in, in Battlegrounds, but I kind of appreciate an update uh, on how you think about the Iranian regime domestically. Clearly, there's a significant proportion of the Iranian population that is not on board with the theocracy. I've often heard it said, and maybe you agree, that if it went to uh, popular sentiment rather than uh, leadership elites, Iran is actually a more pro-American uh, state than almost any Arab state uh, in terms of popular sentiment. And so I'm kind of puzzled by where Iran's future lies. Sometimes we act as if its, its regime will just be there forever and its nuclear program will always be there and we just have to kind of work out how to contain it. But maybe we're missing the real story here, which is this is a dying regime that is losing legitimacy almost as fast uh, as it's losing wealth. It's certainly, if it's not a dying regime, Neil, it is, a, it is a regime that has been weakened tremendously. And I would say it has been weakened tremendously, mainly because of the kleptocratic theological uh, dictatorship, the, the, the theocracy that, that, uh, that the Iranian people are forced to live under. So I, I don't think we should take credit with our sanctions for, you know, for, the, uh, for the stagnation of the Iranian economy or the plight of the, the Iranian people who live in a country with tremendous resources, but resources that are squandered by, uh, by the regime. Uh, but the sanctions did have, have a significant effect. And I think, uh, I think the Trump administration approach generally, which was to hey, force Iran to make a choice, right? You, you can either be a responsible nation and be treated as such and be integrated into the international economy, or you can continue to be the, the world's greatest state sponsor of, of terrorists and, and continue to foment and, and, and fuel these proxy wars that have created so much uh, human suffering and, 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 uh, and insecurity uh, across the region and, and suffer the consequences. But how do they stay in power? And Ronnie and friend told me one time, he said, you know, stability in Iran is a myth. And, and it, essentially, Neil, he was making your point that, hey, this is, this is not a monolithic country. This is not a country in which, in, in which people appreciate the state policing their thoughts. This is a country that has a rich cultural heritage uh, that, that, uh, that values uh, the sovereignty of, of individuals, that has a, a vibrant um, cultural and, and, uh, and, and literary uh, history. And so, you know, I, I think that, that we have to ask, them, okay, well, how does this regime survive? You know, how, how do they do it? Well, they do it by maintaining the mechanisms of power, obviously. They have 
they have created ideological sources of strength with this 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 filet al-faqih, this rule of the jurisprudence, and some people buy into that, especially in more conservative rural areas. But the, the main mechanisms of control are force, right? A, a very brutal intelligence arm backed up by the basij, which is an element of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps that will beat anyone into submission, as we've seen with the arrests and the and the shootings and the bludgeonings that have occurred in, in even just the most recent protests in, in, in Iran. And then there are economic mechanisms of power uh, through, uh, through these bunyads, which are essentially collective ownership organi uh, organizations uh, of, of most of the companies. I mean, the biggest companies in, in, in Iran, the beneficial owners of the biggest construction companies, the, the biggest you name it companies are these bunyads who are mainly the offspring of the, of the clerical order or members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. And again, you know, it's one of these assumptions, right? That, hey, if we open up to Iran, more businesses will profit, and then an alternative power base will emerge that can challenge the conservatives in, in, in the government. Well, no, actually, the alleviation of sanctions strengthened that order because it gave them more cash to maintain what are essentially criminalized patronage networks. So, you know, I, I think that that the economic dimension of, of this policy is important to keep in place. I was I was encouraged a little bit, you know, by by uh, by by, uh, by by the testimony of the of the of the the uh, the, the secretary of state, uh, Tony Blinken, uh, because when he was asked about Iran, he didn't say we should alleviate sanctions right away. He did say that the that the regime would have to go back into compliance with the deal before there was any talk of alleviation of sanctions. And I think most importantly, he talked about the nuclear deal's flaws, not including the missile program and the sunset clause. But he also talked about the need to connect Iran stopping or reducing dramatically its support for terrorists and, and militias with with any kind of a new deal. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I think there is a debate going on within this when this in this administration. Um, and, and I hope that it will come down in favor of, of a tougher approach toward Iran. Can I follow I, I that up uh, with a question about about the other big player? And, and you already alluded to the fact that the Biden administration sounds like it wants to sort of be equidistant with respect to Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, or at least take a tougher line towards Saudi. I, some of you uh, may already have seen a, a documentary, The, the Dissident, uh, that uh, uh, is a pretty hard-hitting account uh, of the uh, Khashoggi uh, murder. It's part of, I think, a really quite profound backlash uh, that, that is happening in the West towards Saudi Arabia and particularly towards Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And it's a, a paradox that I think you can help us resolve. In some ways, uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, appeared to be and still appears to be someone who wants to modernize the kingdom. Uh, so you gave a great account of how you think about Iran's inner life. Can you do the same for Saudi Arabia's inner life? Because it's almost an equally puzzling phenomenon. And, and I still struggle with it. Uh, myself, I, I I never quite know how to think about uh, about Saudi and and whether uh, I should kind of take the line that the, the the documentary the dissident takes or or recognize that maybe there is some modernization going on here under MBS. Right. 
Well, obviously it's mixed and it's really difficult to, to overstate the horror of, uh, of Jamal Khashoggi's murder and dismemberment. And it's worth pointing out that not only was he a member of the press, he was a U.S. resident, right? So I'll tell you, Daniel, nobody disappoints like the Saudis, right? I mean, you, get, you, get, you get rising expectations and then just prepare for, for disappointment. But I think that if we don't remain engaged with Saudi Arabia and cultivate that relationship, we, we lose a degree of influence in, in, in encouraging the kind of reforms that, that Mohammed bin Salman has undertaken, right? Now, now, these reforms, to many of our listeners, will not will sound kind of ridiculous, right? But how about allowing you know, women to go to movies or to drive cars uh, or for a non-married couple to be seen together on the streets? Or, you know, so, so there have been significant social reforms and he has a vision, which I asked John to comment on, on its viability uh, for, for, for diversifying the kingdom uh, economically and to do so with, you know, with a range of green technologies and a, and a new urban center, this city of Neom, you know, which, uh, which is a, a futuristic, you know, narrow and long uh, city built in, in the desert, right? So, so he has these grand ambitions, which, which I, I think you know, a lot of people say this is because he's, you know, he's so young, uh, he is in power, is full of himself, and he makes he makes bad or horrible decisions in the in connection with the Khashoggi murder. But you know, Neil, I wish I could tell you, you know, what are what are the you know what are the dynamics within the Saudi royal family? I, I think in many ways we understand Iran a little bit better than we understand the power plays that go on within within the Saudi royal family. Uh, but but again, this relationship has an economic history. It has a security in, uh, history that 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 is is is. Um, You've colored mainly by access to, to energy. Uh, but, John, I, I'd love to hear your comments on on Saudi Arabia. And then maybe also just, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is, hey, because the United States is now a net energy exporter, that why do we care what goes on in the Middle East? Right. We're not we're not economically dependent on, on the region for anything anymore. So uh, I want to talk about the economics. But first, I want to ask both of you guys a larger question uh, based on your what you just interchanged here, especially Neil, the historian who can who can bring the big perspective here, because what we're talking about. So clearly, the the only way to make sense of our strategy with regard to Iran, Iran uh, is we're waiting for regime change. <clears throat> we're trying to keep them from blowing things up really big until the whole thing falls apart <clears throat> by by <clears throat> and then something more sensible takes over. But that is, uh, that's fraught. Uh, um, New, uh, North Korea has stayed in place for a long, long time. Uh, Cuba has stayed in place for a long, long time, uh, despite sanctions. So uh, dictatorial regimes seem to be able to stay in place as long as they are willing to, um, to undertake the kind of violence that it takes to stay in place. Maduro, I'd add to that, right? Yeah, right, many more. Uh, it's when... When they lose, you know, the Russians lost the um, moral will to keep shooting their own people, and then it fell apart. Um, that's where, you know, Saudi Arabia wants to reform. But if we, yeah, you know, it's, it's when you start reforming, the czar started reforming things. <clears throat> that didn't work out so well for the czar. Uh, so that's actually, you know, how does, when we look at history, is the end of Iran uh, a nice new regime, <clears throat> or is the end of Iran regime, the way the end of the Syrian regime worked out, or yeah. the way the end of the Libyan regime worked out, 
um, or the, the way the end of the French regime worked out in uh, 70, 1790. So uh, the way the end of the Russian regime worked out. Um, right. hey, hey, for regime closer, to, closer to home, the Shah in 1979. Well, I was going to bring that right. up. You said uh, MBS wants to liberalize. We have an example of a westernized um, uh, leader who wanted to, to modernize his country. And that one didn't work out so well for the Shah or for Iran. So um, it's a, clearly our strategy is wait for regime change. But, uh, you know, when you ask the question, how long can, can this last? It can last as long as they are willing to, to do the horrible things it takes to stay in power. And, and it stops when they don't. And then um, chaos seems to result. So this is, I brought up many countries and, and I'm sure Neil has the wider sense of end of regime that can help us try to find not just when it falls apart, when they give up their their willingness to 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 shoot their own people if necessary to stay in power, uh, when the forces of a little bit of reform take over to bigger reform, and does it turn into another complete disaster, or how does this turn into a a you know the whole Arab Spring turned out not so well, uh, despite great hopes for for that process. That of course was another thing that the foreign policy establishment in Washington and New York got fabulously wrong because they thought that it was glad confident morning. Uh, that some kind of 1776 was unfolding uh, in Tahrir Square in Egypt. And it's important that we talk about Egypt, the most populous of the Arab countries, because I think in some ways the al-Sisi regime is the sort of shape of things to come. Uh, what we can see in a bunch of countries, not only in the Middle East, it's also true in Eastern Europe, is that if you have uh, some kind uh, of authoritarian uh, regime with uh, a nationalist uh, element, or a religious element, uh, some degree of participatory democracy, you have a viable system. Uh, and it's certainly better than a civil war. Uh, the great mistake that was made at the time of the misnamed Arab Springs was to think that support uh, for revolution would lead to good outcomes. What actually happened in Egypt was a counter-revolution the Muslim Brotherhood uh, regime was overthrown and uh, and uh, the al-Sisi regime took over. And it's a very, very interesting story. By the way, did you know Egypt was one of the few economies last year that achieved economic growth? It's weathered the storm of the pandemic. Uh, well, like other youthful countries, see India. And what I'm very struck by with uh, al-Sisi is the way he has combined uh, support from the military uh, with support from a middle class that did not want the economy taken over by uh, the Brotherhood. He's also reigned in the uh, religious uh, extremists by going to Al-Azhar, the great uh, Islamic university, and saying, we need a Muslim reformation, an extraordinarily important and brave thing for him to say. So I can see the future uh, of, of politics in some countries in the region taking on that form. Uh, the alternative is, of course, state disintegration. We haven't talked about Iraq. It's teetered I was, on the I was going to go there. <laughs> falling apart ever since the Obama administration pulled the plug and simply uh, walked away. I'd love to get HR's latest thoughts on, on that. But I, my sense is that that's the choice in the region, that you either have a, a strong man with some elements of representative government and the fanatics reined in, uh, or you risk uh, a Syrian uh, disintegration uh, or indeed a Libyan well, disintegration. Let me quickly try it and, and because I want to be bipartisan and we're, we're only going back to Obama. The Bush administration had a major failure in Iraq, 
which I think was equally naive, the idea that um, democracy consists only of we walk in, we run an election and then everything's fine. Uh, whereas what I think you're pointing to is what matters is institutions, rule of law, civil society, all of those things that uh, are 99% of what makes America run that isn't elections. And if those things are in place, then you have a hope of a transfer of regime. If those things are not in place or wiped out, uh, then you're going to have chaos afterwards. I guess that brings us squarely to Iraq. Uh, for what it's worth, I think Iraq was salvageable after the, the surge. And uh, it was a tremendous mistake to give up. Uh, but uh, we are where we are. And at this point, as I think you'd agree, HR, the Iraqi state hangs together by a series of pretty slender threads. Uh, so what, what's your, your current take on, on the future of Iraq? And, and, and compare and contrast with Afghanistan, which may be in, in worse place. Well, you know, I'll tell you, I, I just want to highlight one thing that, that we've already just talked about, we've skimmed over quickly, is, is the importance of Egypt, right? Because if we're talking about Egypt, you're talking about a problem of very large scale, right? And Egypt does have a lot of problems. And it, it also reflects this tension in the, in the region between, you know, between fear of, of, the, of an Islamist resurgence uh, and, and, and the, the need uh, to allow for, for more uh, liberal forms of representative government and participation in government. So I, I do think that we ought to support uh, Egyptian reform over time. Um, and, uh, and then also, I think, be more sympathetic to those who are skeptical about Muslim Brotherhood related parties in, in the region, because you know, they're, they're, not, <laughs> they're not Democrats, right? And we know that from the Morsi experience in, in Egypt as well. We know it from you know, really some of the groups that Gutter and Turkey are, are, are supporting in the region. Hey, Iraq is, you know, Iraq is all of the problems in the region, you know, in, in, in microcosm, right? It is a, it is a country that is a crazy quilt of ethnicities and, and, and religious sects. Uh, it's, it is a, a country uh, in, in which there, this cycle of violence between uh, jihadist terrorist organizations who portray themselves as patrons and protectors of Sunni uh, communities who fear evisceration at the hands of Shia militias, um, the, 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 that, that the cycle of violence continues between Sunni and, and Shia groups uh, within, within Iraq. That's reflected, that competition is reflected in its politics. It's also reflected uh, within the institutions of government that, that are themselves battlegrounds between these various groups that are vying for power and resources and survival in the country. Sadly, uh, these groups that are effect, trying to affect state capture to be in a position of relative advantage, uh, they, they are stakeholders in the weakness of the state because it's the weakness of the institutions that they occupy that give them impunity and give them the ability to run a broad range of illicit operations and efforts and, and, and uh, endeavors that, that enrich them and increase their power base and increase their patronage base. And so what's needed in, in Iraq is, is governmental reform and reform of security forces such that the majority of the population believes that they have a future within some kind of political process. What's, what's impeding that from happening uh, is this, I, this idea that this is really a zero-sum game. And a number of competitions aren't going. I mentioned Sunni Shia, but there's also a Kurd Arab Turkmen competition. And there's a competition within each of those populations as well. 
right? So, so you know, when, when Iraq you know, got you know, um, enmeshed in a civil war, the, the country shattered, not like a you know, pane of, of glass, but shattered like a light bulb. And, and what's necessary is our security conditions and sustained mediation by effective leaders to bring them together. You know, Hyder al-Abadi, who was a friend of mine, and I knew him back to 2003, the former prime minister, knew him well before he became prime minister. He said, you know, sectarianism and corruption go hand in hand. And, and, and these corrupt networks are perpetuating these divides. At the top level of the, of the Iraqi government, you know, you have Mustafa Al-Khadami, who I've known for years as well. He's the, 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 maybe one of the best people to do this, right? Because he, he actually is an Iraqi nationalist. He actually is someone who doesn't evaluate people by their religious sect or their ethnicity. He wants a better future for his country. Uh, the, 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 the governor of Nineveh province, which was this area where our regiment operated, where there was a crazy civil war going on in, in microcosm there. That, that governor is Najam Abed Abdullah Al-Jabouri, uh, who was the mayor of Talafur when we, when we, we fought uh, against uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, there. And um, he's the perfect person to stabilize it. So there are rays of hope, but there are daunting obstacles. And John, I don't know how much you're following Iraq's economy, uh, but you know, with the collapse of oil prices, with you know, with with the the violence, and now COVID, um, you know, the, Iraq's debt is is growing, uh, maybe beyond what they can service. Um, and so there's there's an economic dimension, a governance dimension. Okay, so I guess I could sum it up and say it's an ugly picture, <laughs> but it but it is I think in our interest to ensure the enduring defeat of ISIS. Because remember, we had to go back when we left last time at a much higher cost. And we can do that with a very small military commitment. And it's in our interest to ensure that Iraq is not completely aligned with Iran. And you know what? That's doable. Iraq is not naturally aligned with, with, with Iran. Uh, so I think, I think the, the answer on Iran is for the United States, modest objectives, recognize the limits of, of our influence, and also what, what the American people, the costs they're, going to, they're willing to bear after so many years there. But I think a sustained, this is where a sustained commitment can help get Iraq on a path towards stability over time. I'm sorry to go on, man, but when you ask a question like Iraq, discuss, man, I can't, it's tough for me to sum up. John, on, a point of, on a point of information, it's interesting that oil is rallying at this point from yeah, the, the lows of last year. We're now above yeah. $50. And, uh, you know, you had Goldman put out a note the other day saying could get to 100. I think the pain uh, of, uh, of energy transition is coming inexorably to the, uh, to the oil producing nations. But in the short run, they're going to get some real breathing space in 2021 as the world economy bounces back from uh, the pandemic. Uh, and I think that's important because uh, ultimately, a lot has been going on here in OPEC, OPEC Plus, uh, trying to deal with this uh, problem through supply uh, restrictions. A deal with Iran where it to materialize under Biden would, uh, would bring a whole lot more oil into the market. That might depress prices. But right now, the demand side is definitely uh, dominant, and that's going to take the pressure off the oil producers, at least uh, for the next few quarters. Right. Hey, we are, we're, getting, we're starting to wind down in time here, gentlemen. I'd like to throw one more question at you before we leave today. And while we talk about a post-American Middle East, there's still a U.S. presence in the Middle East. Uh, yesterday, an American contractor was killed by a pro-Iranian missile in uh, the Kurdistan region. We have troops uh, throughout the region. Uh, HR, question to you. You have twice 
served in that region twice, led troops into combat, uh, the Gulf War and then Iraq after that. Do you think in our lifetime we're going to have a third U.S. involvement in the Middle East? And if so, HR would be the trigger. Yeah, you know, I, I, I hope not. I, you know, I, I don't think so. And but my answer to like how we could prevent it from happening is to remain engaged. You know, I'll tell you, Bill, we keep saying, hey, we're leaving. Right. We're leaving. But we don't really leave. But every time we say it, we give up so much of our influence. So I think the real you know, what, what we need is we need a realistic, reasoned approach to the region. We have to recognize that we do have influence there and we can play a positive role in at least ensuring the situation doesn't get worse for the people of the region or for our interests. You know, but we don't have we don't have complete agency over the Middle East, you know, and, and even if we committed you know, vast resources, we wouldn't. So I think recognizing both the possibilities associated with it, with a, a, a sustained and reasoned and sustainable approach to, to the Middle East, but also recognizing our limitations is what's key. You know, we swung to extremes in the region, right, from, you know, regime change against Iraq in 2003. And I, mean, I often say, OK, hey. We always want to debate, should we have invaded Iraq in 2003? Let's debate, like, who the heck thought it would be easy? Why did they think it would be easy? And then we swung toward the disengagement from Iraq in December 2011 that set conditions really for the rise of ISIS and, and then a return of our forces to the region. So you know, we have very small forces, for example, in Iraq and, and Syria. Those small forces are important because they give us a degree of political influence. It's not just the military effort. It's the military and diplomatic and economic and law enforcement uh, and, and, and intelligence efforts that are important to, to protecting us mm-hmm. from the problems that originate in the region, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> the Middle East doesn't adhere to Las Vegas rules, right? I mean, what, what, you know, what, you know, what happens there does, d- doesn't stay there. And so, so that's the argument I would make for you know, a reasoned approach to the, to the, to the, to the region and then and then, you know, and I do think we still have economic interests. We didn't get to hear from John completely on that. Maybe he could wrap it up, wrap that into your, your final question as well, Bill. John, go ahead. Economy? Well, the, the influence question, I, I do think we need to realize that as we backed up and forced them to stop squabbling and solve their own problems, good things happened. Um, and it's not clear that our influence is used in a consistent and wise manner um, following a decades-long clear star of where policy ought to go. Mm -hmm. Um, So to some extent, a long-run goal of this region is stable enough that you don't need our influence uh, might be a good long-run goal. But I I am watching the disaster in Afghanistan. I'm I'm not in favor of uh, immediately uh, pulling out. Uh, The economic question I I would add uh, sort of to what Neil said, you know, there's a pretty flat supply curve of of oil at around 50 bucks a barrel and all sorts of, unless they ban it in the US, which they might, uh, all sorts of supply can come on fairly quickly. Uh, And I think the long run, uh, the long run plans, the one thing I know for sure is that top down investments from big government plans have never led to uh, sustained prosperity. So you look at the places that got rich in the world, that made the transition, by the way, to, to democracy and got rich in the world. They're like you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, um, places with no natural resources, but very smart people who had to build businesses on their own, as opposed to a lot of oil money that got through into a big project um, and then wanted to support a, a people who didn't, you know, didn't weren't in the position to start their own businesses and, and develop their own human capital and so forth. So uh, 
and, and this is also true, I, I, I think the um, parts of the Abraham, the, the Kushner plan that was, we're gonna shower, we're gonna make uh, Palestine rich by showering international investment on them is, is you just gotta get out of the way and, and get entrepreneurial spirit going. That's the only thing that creates, uh, creates wealth. So I'm, I, I don't think that that plan is, is likely to bear fruit either. Go ahead, Neil. Well, the post-American Middle East, if that's what we're heading for, is also the post-British or post-Anglo-French <laughs> Middle East, which is also the post-Ottoman Middle East. And, and so what we are dealing here with, with is, is with a region that has had multiple imperial uh, histories. One of the best historical analogies uh, that I came across recently, uh, which was one of the papers presented at the 2018 Applied History Conference at Hoover, was with the, the piece of Westphalia. The argument is that the Middle East is kind of where Europe was in the early 17th century, uh, deeply divided with lots of fragmentary states and uh, ongoing religious conflicts. Uh, and how did that end? Well, it, it didn't end with any one power becoming dominant, it ended with all the powers agreeing on a new set of rules, uh, which we tend to associate uh, with the, the, the peace of Westphalia. Now, could there be a Westphalian outcome uh, in, the, in the Middle East? That, that, I think, is a really interesting question. It's one that Henry Kissinger has occasionally talked about. That would be an outcome in which all the great powers, uh, all the big players in the region, including the United States, but also including Russia, including uh, Turkey, including the European uh, powers with interest in the region, would sit down with the locals and come up with some new rules of the road that, uh, for example, uh, set some limits on where uh, religious conflicts could go and created some understanding, understandings about sovereignty so that a state like Lebanon wasn't constantly being interfered with by its neighbors. I don't know if we'll ever get to that piece of Westphalia, but it seems to me a more plausible destination than the destination the peace processes uh, still uh, imagine, which is a, a destination where you get peace in the region because you finally satisfy the Palestinians. If that's still the model uh, in the minds of people in the Biden administration, they're going to waste the next four years. And, right. Neil, you're brilliant because that one is under the umbrella of the imperial power US and that uh, getting Two, two small nations who are under an imperial umbrella to agree on anything. I, I, I'm going to venture historically that never worked. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's uh, close with a very um, quick lightning round here. Simple question to the three of you. Neil, you like these questions, John. You're not going to like this, but I'm sorry. I'm going to put you on the spot. And that's me this. time to think. <laughs> As we look at the Middle East, gentlemen, just I'd like you to offer me just a very large thought or a very bold prediction. Neil, you go first. My bold prediction is uh, indeed that the United States will continue its uh, retreat from the region uh, and that uh, there will not be a revolutionary change uh, of regime in, in any of the key players uh, and that ultimately uh, violence will, uh, will diminish in proportion as strong leaders uh, like the Egyptian president al-Sisi are able to impose their authority on the different nation states. Okay, John, uh, a bold prediction or a grumpy economist blog-like big thought? Well, I'll offer the Neil Ferguson bold prediction <clears throat> that something unexpected and terrible is likely to happen. Uh, because, um, you know, for example, the Iranians are not gonna go quietly and uh, something is gonna go boom. And um, once again, 
pieties repeated over 50 years will have will shown have shown to be completely false. Okay. HR, I'm gonna give you the last word. Big thought, bold prediction. <laughs> well, it, it, it can get worse in the Middle East, right? You have the Lebanese state in free fall, you have about 150,000 rockets pointed at Israel from southern Lebanon, more from Gaza. You have the Syrian civil war, which is at a stalemate now in Idlib, but could get much, much worse. And it's a multi-party conflict. You have Yemen, which we haven't talked about, where where Iran is endeavoring to gain you know, a strategic location along across the, you know, the Red Sea and at the Bab al-Mandeb uh, that, that's, that's dangerous as well. I guess the overall thought I would say is that it is in our interest to help break the cycle of sectarian violence in the region and to help the countries in the region get on a slow path toward greater security uh, and stability. And what I would tell our Arab friends in the, in the region oftentimes is that really the United, it's in the United States' interest to have strong uh, Arab states uh, that, that, that are sovereign and respect the sovereignty of their citizens. Iran wants the opposite. So I, I would just say that I hope that the Biden administration carries that message and, and strengthens rather than diminishes the, the, the relationships that we have with the Arab states, because that's the best way, I think, to, to have a positive influence in the region over time. Okay, let's leave it at that, but let's agree to return to this at some future date because it's not like the Middle East is going to get solved overnight, now is it? So that's it for this episode of Goodfellows. We'll be back next week with a new episode, a new topic. Until then, on behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, by all means, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you in a week. <laughs>